Welcome to All the Things with Monique Dusan from the Center for Biblical Unity and theology mom, Krista Bontrager. And now, here's Krista and Monique. Hello, and welcome to Saturday. This is All the Things. I am Monique Dusan. I'm Krista Bontrager, also known as Theology Mom. Did you, did you get your eyebrow? Yeah, y'all, we go ahead and be, she calling me out because um, we were late. We were late because my one of my eyebrows didn't want to go on properly. Y'all can't be having eyebrows on different planes, but I know some of y'all know what I'm talking about. All the, all the, all the male viewers just clicked off. That's all right. <laughs> That's all right. Those male viewers must not be married because when you do makeup, sometimes it's like, wait a minute, what happened? What happened? All so that right. was my own vanity. I apologize. <laughs> I apologize. Tonight's show is going to be awesome. But yeah. before we get into that, we want to do a little house cleaning and say, please like our show. If you have not on Facebook, if you are on Facebook, we will meet you there um, on the Center for Biblical Unity or Theology Mom and all the things Facebook page. We are there. Leave your comments. And also on our YouTube page, subscribe if you have not hit that little bell so we can get you notifications when we do things. And I think that's it. No, the show is also brought to you by Family 210. It's our clothing store and by the Center for Biblical Unity and the Theology Mom Theology Mom podcast. Hey, by the way, I have a great uh, podcast coming up. Well, yeah, first, let's go to the shirts. Uh, you can go to centerforbiblicalunity.com slash merch. That's the easiest way to get there. Um, but I wanted to say tonight that we have more than just the CFBU merch in the Family <laughs> 210 clothing store. I know the, the Christmas is coming. Um, so, you know, go check out our other designs. Here's one of my favorites right here. If you if you know Star Wars or The Mandalorian, this is sort of a riff on on that, uh, the Nazarene, you can see there. I think that's kind of cool. But we have, uh, our designs are available in a lot of different styles and uh, different options, long sleeves, short sleeves. So if, uh, okay, I was going to show the other things. But yeah, so there's, oh yeah, we have another riff there on Stranger Things. There's Greater Things. So there's a lot of different designs there you can go check out uh, for the holidays. You just got a new sweatshirt today. I just ordered a sweatshirt. Yes, yeah. and it came in today. It is the the logo, but in a sweatshirt. And because my color is blue, um, I love bright colors. Yeah. So, but I like bright blue especially. Um, I got a bright blue sweatshirt Ooh. so that I can be warm in these frigid temperatures because I cannot even. So the CFBU... Swag, $5 of those proceeds goes to help Monique's ministry. Uh, if you get one of our other designs, it just goes to help our family directly. Yes. And so it's a great way to support us as, you know, all the content and all the things that we do. And um, speaking of people and content, uh, uh, the show is engineered this week and every week by Bob Bontrager. Yes. There he is. Hey. Except when uh, he's working, then Abby tries to step in. Uh, yes. But work's been a little slow with the pandemic. And our guest moderators tonight are Laura Hartley and our friend Caleb Harrelson. Hey, y'all. Welcome. And um, yeah, good things are happening. So go over on the live chat on YouTube and you can interact with us and our guests tonight. And that's a great way to let us know what you're thinking and 
ask clarifying questions and things. Let's see who's checking in. Get your brows bladed. I, oh, oh, I cannot. I don't know. Like microbladed. Because I feel like, isn't that where they like do the little tattoos? I don't know about that. I am nervous about a tattoo on my face. Yes. I, I, mm-mm, mm-mm. I'm listening to all the men click off the show right now. Hello um, from a snowy Missoula. Snow. See, that's, mm-mm, I cannot even. <laughs> cannot even. All right. Okay, so, um, let's see. You know what? I just realized. No, what? I, I didn't set up our clocks. So I have no idea. <laughs> Time management could be a problem tonight. Y'all, um, this, today was just us in complete relax mode. I didn't I do anything for CFBU. I didn't do anything for school. Abby and I went and got pupusas. Yes, yeah. If you know what a pupusa is, woo, you know that that Salvadorian food be getting you. And then what? Did we, then we went and got ice cream. And then they went without we went me. shopping. And then I came home and I took a nap. And I woke up right before we were supposed to have dinner and the show. <laughs> so you know, if we're just keeping it honest because we're family, this is what happened. So we're just a little off today. Don't mind us. All right. So let's talk about our guest. Um, yes. Oh, I want pupusas. Ah, so good. <laughs> All right. So. <laughs> I titled the show tonight, Is There Any Such Thing as My Truth? Mm -hmm. And I think it's going to be a great conversation. Uh, We have a fantastic guest tonight, Dr. Aaron Preston, who is a professor of philosophy at, I'm going to try to say it right, Valparaiso, I hope I said that right, University. I think it's a Lutheran school. So let's get Aaron. I ask. (laughs) Let's get Aaron on the show here, and we can ask him how to pronounce the name of his school. <laughs> hey, Aaron. Hi there. How Thanks. are you two doing? Good. Doing good. Thanks for coming on and being with us. Thanks for having me. So how do you here. say the name of your school? Well, those of us here in town say Valparaiso. Valparaiso. Is yes. that Latin? Well, you know, I think it actually is uh, Spanish. There is a town in Chile called Valparaiso. It means uh, Vale of Paradise. Oh, wow. Okay. And so, um, actually, I think the rationale behind naming this area Valparaiso was one of those Greenland-Iceland things where it was kind of misdirection. Oh. You know, it's like you name uh, the icy place Greenland and you, you name the uh, green place Iceland and then, then you won't get raided by pirates and whatnot. So this is kind of, <laughs> especially as we approach winter, the opposite of a valley of paradise. But, so where, but where are you exactly? Uh, I'm in the northwestern corner of Indiana, right oh, at the. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very good. Yeah. Well, why don't Very you cool. tell us a, a little about yourself and your area of kind of academic interest and expertise? Sure. Yeah. So um, I uh, went to the University of Southern California as an undergraduate and took a philosophy class with uh, Dallas Willard, who was a well-known Christian philosopher and teacher on spiritual formation um, when I was a sophomore. And uh, he hooked me on philosophy. So I changed my major to philosophy and never looked back. Uh, Went to the University of Edinburgh, got a degree in systematic theology, and then came back to USC to take my doctorate with Dallas. While I was there, I got interested in the differences between different styles or methods of doing philosophy uh, that some of my professors there exhibited. And many of them came from a background different from Dallas Willard's. Uh, They came out of a school of thought called analytic philosophy, which is a 20th century school of philosophy that 
ended up dominating English language philosophy for at least the second half of the 20th century. And um, so most of my work has been in the history of analytic philosophy, trying to understand the roots of that movement, where it came from, and why it caught on. But one of the reasons it concerned me was because um, the rise of analytic philosophy was coupled with the rejection of a traditional philosophical aspiration, and that is to provide guidance to the moral life philosophy used to be very invested in providing guidance to the moral life, but with the rise of analytic philosophy, that uh, objective was dropped, and I wanted to understand why that was. So most of my work then is sort of in that area of the history of analytic philosophy um, combined with, uh, with ethics. I think it's hmm. it's fascinating. Now, I want to kind of let our, our viewers know, because there's a lot of them that probably don't even know why philosophy is important or why it matters. <laughs> and um, it's, it's a tool, it's a very important tool, a helpful tool for helping us think properly. And um, even if we aren't philosophers by profession, just much like theology, we, we engage in the enterprise of philosophy. And so maybe a good place to start, Aaron, is we're going to, walk through kind of the big question tonight of is there any such thing as quote unquote my truth mm -hmm. which is a conversation that our culture is really caught up in but what i love about what you have to bring is the historical perspective and so maybe start walking us through kind of the connection um between analytic philosophy and and um, I think it's continental. continental philosophy and how that historically provides some underpinnings to the conversation of how we get to this moment of everyone walking around saying, I have my own personal truth. And we're big on definitions on our show. So can you define those terms? Yeah, please. <laughs> Which terms do you want? Uh, analytic philosophy yeah. and continental philosophy? Yeah, kind of compare and contrast those for us a little right. bit. Right. So I can't give you strict definitions of. Those. I don't know. I'm just asking. A lot of there's a lot of disagreement about how to how to adequately define them, but I can give you general descriptions. So the analytic tradition and philosophy uh, is associated with uh, the idea that philosophy is about um, the analysis of language. That was sort of the idea that originally birthed the movement that became known as analytic philosophy. Uh, since then, it has uh, backed away from that view, and it's just become more associated with a general style of argumentation that aspires to be extremely rigorous. And you often will see the use of formal logic in analytic philosophy. That's one of its uh, trademarks. Um, in an attempt to provide almost uh, quasi-mathematical proofs for um, philosophical positions. So that's a, a sort of rough and ready characterization of, of some of the main trends in analytic philosophy. So would um, analytic philosophy be more like in the vein of what we see in formal logic and maybe even like scientific induction and, and more in the realm of mathematics? It's, it's more in what is the underpinning of, of those disciplines? Would that be a fair way of describing it? I think that's it? in the ballpark. Yeah, okay. one way of putting it is to say that the analytic tradition has tried to bring scientific rigor and precision to philosophy. And by contrast, uh, the continental tradition uh, 
um, has been more willing to embrace the messiness of um, sort of human language. Uh, their their approach, well, I mean, they am generalizing here. There are lots of different approaches, but one of the things characteristic of what we call continental philosophy is a hermeneutic approach to philosophy. So the idea here is it's about interpretation, and we want to try to understand how to properly interpret things so as to understand them correctly. Of course, then that leads to questions about whether there is any thing like a correct understanding of a text or a person's statements. Um, and one of the things that um, the continental tradition, and especially its later phases, uh, the phase that we call postmodernism, one of the things that it's most infamous for is the rejection of objective meanings and truths. So when we think about uh, continental philosophy, that's more in the realm of the idea of um, truth as it connects to postmodernism. And the question is there, can we even know what's true? Can we really even know what texts mean? Or is there just individual meaning mm -hmm. indiv to the text? So. Right how this might play out in your local Bible study group might be going around the room and saying, what does this text mean to you? And so that would be kind of a more <clears throat> postmodern um, approach to the text. Would, would right. that be correct, Aaron? Well, I think that that is, that is correct. Um, when you read the, the postmodern theorists, um, they would not be satisfied with just what does it mean to you they're usually much more complex in in their ways of dealing with oh yes postmodernism is quite complex right but <laughs> yes. Uh, but yes the, this idea of sort of looking at um, at private meanings or individual construals is is much and, and sort of letting them be authoritative or bearing more authority than we might normally that's more consistent with a continental or postmodern approach than with uh, an analytic approach so we have a question from a viewer here. Uh, he wants to know, is from Caleb, uh, does the continental tradition align itself more with the coherence view of truth and the analytical view align itself with the correspondence view of truth? Does that have any relation to what you're talking about? Well, you know, I, I don't think so. Um, so the for those who, who maybe aren't unfamiliar with those terms, the correspondence theory of truth just says that a statement or a belief, for example, is true um, when it corresponds with what it is about. So if I say that uh, I've got a, a cup of punch over here on, on my desk, um, that's going to be true if and only if there is in fact a cup of punch here on my desk and there is, uh, you know, boom, there it is. So that's true. Um, that's the correspondence theory of truth. The coherence theory of truth says that statements are true if and only if they are logically coherent with one another. So the idea here is that maybe you can't get outside your own set of beliefs to check and confirm whether uh, correspondence uh, obtains, but maybe you can within the circle of your own beliefs make sure they're coherent. Um, the continental uh, tradition, at least as it turns into postmodernism, is not even concerned with coherence. So I would say that in the more extreme forms of continental thought, the ones that uh, make the news, so to speak, they um, 
are not concerned with truth in either of those senses. That's a really important point, because maybe you can unpack that a little bit more, because I think it's important for people to understand that kind of more in the analytical side, in the analytical view of truth, you know, we, if we talk about the law of gravity, that applies to everybody. That's, that's more of, a, of an empirical truth. But when we talk about postmodernism, the question is, you know, there are some things that we really can't know. And so maybe unpack that a little bit more. Yeah. So one of the things that we might want to do here is make a distinction between um, truth and knowledge of the truth, because it's entirely possible that um, there are truths out there that we can't know just because they're too complicated or we don't have uh, the right kind of access to those truths. So, so that's a possibility. And, you know, we run into this problem even in context where we, in general, believe in objective truth, um, there's something called the three-body problem in, in physics. It has to do with um, if you know the um, location and, and trajectory of three physical bodies moving in space um, at an, a certain point in time, can you predict where they will be relative to each other later on? No one's been able to solve this yet. We presume there's a truth about that, but we don't yet have access to it. So that's the case where there is a truth that maybe someone could know, well, presumably God would know it at the very least, but no human being has been able to access that truth yet. Distinguish that from a case where there just is no truth to be known. So, for instance, um, in the middle of the 20th century, there was a view about moral truth called emotivism that said um, moral utterances don't actually convey um, truth claims. All they do uh, is express a person's feelings. Now, in that case, the claim was there's just not anything there to be known when I say, for example, lying is wrong. Um, all I'm doing is saying something that's equivalent to boo lying. I don't, <laughs> boo -lying. I don't like it, <laughs> that kind of thing. Right? It's, this, it's this emotive uh, expression. And um, there is no cognitive content to be understood, nothing to be confirmed or even checked for coherence to, to tell whether or not it's true. Um, so that's more the, the way postmodern thought tends to work, is to deny that there are even truths there to be known. Okay. So maybe it would be helpful at this point to say briefly what the historic Christian position is, because we've kind of laid out these two kind of schools of thought how have Christians historically thought about truth and knowledge and, and that sort of thing? Like, is there objective truth, something that exists outside of us? Are these things knowable? Maybe you can paint that picture for us a little bit. Sure, I can try. So that's, um, and this is a pretty complicated picture so I'll try to keep it simple. Um, but the basic idea here is that the, the presumption of Christian thinkers throughout the ages seems to be that there are objective truths, many of which are knowable by human beings, um, but some of which maybe aren't. I mean, one of the difficult issues that we get into in some versions of Christian theology is this idea that God is so transcendent that he can't be known by human beings operating under their sort of normal, natural faculties, um, that, that there has to be something special that happens to them to lift them out of their, of their normal uh, conceptual capacities to really understand the truth about God. Um, but then, you know, there, 
are mundane truths that uh, that can be known, and there are truths about God that can be known, say, by analogy, um, that maybe cannot be uh, known in their fullness and in their lit- in their literal fullness, but they can be known by analogy. So there are lots of different views here, but but um, the basic orientation of the Christian tradition is that there are objective truths and they are in principle knowable uh, so long as as certain conditions for knowledge are met. So so a way that I learned that in seminary is that there are certain truths that are like my old professor, J.P. Moreland, used to say, um, who, who was also a student of Dallas Willard's, of, he said, you know, that these there are certain truths that are part of the invisible furniture of the universe, that there are things that are rooted in God's character. There are things that are true, that are true independent of our knowing them. They flow out of God's character. And, and so classic example that JP would talk about is the idea that two plus two equals four, that mathematics are part of that invisible furniture of the universe. Um, the, the idea that lying is wrong is an extension of God's moral character that is part of the invisible furniture of the universe. So when we say lying is wrong, we're not just saying boo lying. (laughs) We don't like it. (laughs) It's not a preference. It's that we are saying something that is true because it is rooted and grounded in God's moral character. And a philosopher, Ron Nash talks about, he has a wonderful short book called the word of um, the word of God in the mind of man. It's one of my, it's a very short little treatise on Christian epistemology of, which is really just the theory of knowing, but it, it talks about how, you know, these things are rooted in the logos of God, the mind of God. And so when we think about two plus two is four, we are actually reflecting the mind of God. We are thinking God's thoughts after him. So that's kind of just, a little thumbnail of a Christian view of knowing anything you else want to add there. Yeah. So um, most of the things that you were mentioning there are what we in philosophy would call necessary truths. And I do think that um, sort of standard Christian commitment here is that um, necessary truths must sort of ground out in the, in the being of God. God is, is the fundamental being from which all other beings come. And um, if there is a way that things must be in the universe. Um, that's because that's the way God is, right? So if two plus two must be four, and it sure seems like that must be the case, then that's because of some fact about God, right? God himself must have a, a sort of mathematical nature, you might say, right? Um, and, and similarly for laws of logic, God must have a, a logical nature um, so that these necessities are fixed in in the very ground of being, which is God's nature. So there are necessary truths that are part of the invisible furniture of the universe, as JP puts it. That's a nice phrase. Um, and then there are contingent truths, which are truths that just happen to be the case. They didn't have to be that way. Like, for example, the particular shirt I'm wearing tonight, I could have picked a different one. Uh, nonetheless, it is true that I am wearing this shirt, not another one. And, and you know, that's a truth that's, um, it's in a sense, just as true as any necessary truth. Um, but it's a contingent truth. So one of the things that we might want to try to do is, is um, make distinctions between different kinds of truths. Um, and that will help to, I think, um, tease out some of what 
get people worked up over the idea of objective truth. And that's another one. Objective truth is something different from universal truth, right? A universal truth is something that applies to all. An objective truth is just something that's mind independent, right? So this, the fact that I'm wearing this shirt is, um, a contingent truth. It's also an objective truth. Uh, it's not a necessary truth. It's not a universal truth. Um, so there are these different categories of truth uh, that as we, as we think about whether there's something that might be called my truth or not, uh, we want to be sensitive to these different types of truth and acknowledge that, well, some of them are more universal than others. Some of them are more objective than others. Would objective truth and absolute truth be the same? Well, that's an interesting question. So absolute um, is a term that if you just take it all by itself, it just sort of means it's it's um, not really dependent on anything beyond itself, just sort of there. So uh, when people talk about absolute truth, I think what they mainly have in mind is objective truth, but sometimes people use that term in such a way that they want it to be universal as well as objective. Hmm. So like two plus two equals four would be would be a universal truth because it is true at all times and places and for all people. Okay. That's, that's interesting. Now, when we look at things like truth based on social location or truth based on pigmentation of skin or things mm-hmm. like that, that's what's referred to as standpoint epistemology, right? Right. Okay. Can so, it- yeah. I'm just making sure. Uh, can you break down standpoint epistemology for us? Maybe give us a, a definition of it or or how we see it in, in this current cultural moment? Sure. So I can, I can give a description here. So there's this more general idea called perspectivalism. And this is just the idea that truths are created from different perspectives. Um, so that my truth may not be your truth. Uh, and, you know, my truth is the world as I see it from my standpoint, and your truth is the world as you see it from your standpoint. Um, what gets called standpoint epistemology takes that basic idea of perspectivalism and then brings some other factors into play. Because the heart of standpoint epistemology is the idea that people who come from oppressed classes will have more insight into how the power dynamics of oppression work than someone who is not subject to oppression as a member of one of those historically oppressed classes, someone who is quote unquote privileged. So um, the traditional standpoint epistemology takes perspectivalism and then brings the issue of, of oppression into play and asks who has the most adequate or accurate view of how a social system really works when it involves oppression. Is it going to be the oppressed or the oppressors? Okay. It's the the oppressed. And, and to give a definition of epistemology again, I think you said that for everybody who doesn't, who may not know, it's the theory of learning. No, it's knowledge. Knowledge. It's a theory of knowledge. Yeah. It's a branch of philosophy that focuses on, how do we know what we know? That's kind of the big question. Okay. And I wonder, Aaron, if you could just kind of tie those two pieces together of continental philosophy and how that leads into standpoint epistemology, kind of bridge those two together for us historically. Sure. So there are several forces in play here. One is, um, is Marxism, 
which is um, sort of notorious for seeing the world through the lens of the oppressor oppressed dynamic. Um, and so you've, you've got that component and you know, Marx was a continental thinker. Uh, and then you've got perspectivalism, um, which uh, Nietzsche, for example, embodies uh, this idea that all I have is my own access to the world. And it's not, not clear that there are these uh, universal, objectively knowable truths. Um, and so you've got this sort of in the deep background, the late 19th century um, continental thought. And these ideas get picked up and developed in, in a whole bunch of different ways. And um, you have the, the critical theorists coming on the scene in the middle of the 20th century who sort of take uh, these views and um, combine them in ways where they repurpose philosophy itself for the for the purpose of liberating people from oppressive systems. And um, they develop this idea that, well, this is, you know, philosophy itself should be about liberation from oppression. Um, meanwhile, you have the idea of standpoint epistemology by that name. So, I mean, there have been things that kind of looked like standpoint epistemology percolating on the continental side of things for a while. But you have uh, the advent of what's called feminist epistemology in uh, the 1970s and 1980s. And the feminist epistemologists were the ones who, as far as I know, coined the term standpoint epistemology and, um, and popularized that notion. And in the beginning, and they, they were drawing on the Marxist tradition to a certain extent in doing so. Um, in its original formulation, there was nothing particularly subjective about standpoint epistemology. The idea was that there is an objective world and there are objective truths, and it's just that um, oppressed people have better access or a better vantage point from which to see the truths about how oppressive systems work. And that actually makes a certain amount of sense. I mean, you take, for example, the Harvey Weinstein case. I mean, who was in a better position to know how Harvey Weinstein treated women than the women that he harassed and abused? Right? So, I mean, this makes a certain kind of sense. But where this becomes problematic is when the idea of standpoint epistemology gets picked up by folks who are more thoroughly postmodern in their thinking and they decide that there there is no objective truth it's not just a matter of um, who has better insight into the objective truth but now there is no objective truth there's just my truth and your truth or when you start breaking this down along demographic lines as is the the standard now there's our truth and and everyone else's truth right so it's you know my my people group my demographic group whether that's you know women versus men or whether it's black versus white the idea is people who belong in my category with me we have access to um to a, a truth that, that no one else has access to. It's our truth. So if we think about like all of these ideas and movements as a grocery store, let's just say we started at one end of the aisle and we started with Marx and then we put that in our shopping basket and then we put Nietzsche in our shopping basket and then we put in some critical theory and some feminist epistemology and then a, some postmodernism that, you know, objective truth isn't a thing or it's at least not knowable. 
And then we put in our cultural moment of, of all of this right. meltdown and it's kind of left the lab now. Now we've got this, we're walking through, we don't even realize that we have this shopping cart of ideas from history that are now impacting and influencing our vocabulary and That's right. and what we're saying and what we're hearing on the news and seeing on social media. We don't realize it just took us like 30 minutes to unpack in extremely thumbnail manner, mm -hmm. super complicated frameworks um, from a historical standpoint that all of this stuff is in our shopping cart. And now we're at the end of the aisle and now we're just, we're in, this cultural moment, would you say that's, that's a fair kind of way of saying it? That's, that's exactly right. So all those items went into the shopping cart and that shopping cart got um, sort of delivered to university classrooms where it was all mixed up into a, a poisonous mixture and it was fed to students for decades. And um, you started really seeing this um, have an effect on college campuses between, well, starting around, 2015. Um, you might know the book, The Coddling of the American Mind by Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff. This was a, a very timely response to a disturbing trend that, that they saw um, manifesting on college campuses, well, a number of disturbing trends. And uh, they tried to diagnose the causes. And, and one stream of causes they put their finger on was exactly what we've been talking about. And this, th these are the ideas that led to the, uh, the protests at, say, Evergreen State University in Washington several years ago. You might remember there were riots and the students sort of took over campus and it was uh, really quite a mess. And um, it was this whole sort of postmodern um, twist on critical theory standpoint epistemology is one part of that. Uh, but that was something that was happening on college campuses beginning around 2015. And this past summer, in the wake of the death of George Floyd and the debates going on about systemic racism in various sectors of society, uh, this has now escaped the lab, so to speak. It's off of the college campuses, it's running loose in the streets, and it's very worrisome. Yeah. So, I want to go back to the Harvey Weinstein thing in a minute, but did you want to jump in here no, with a question? Ahead. Okay. Um, so, because I, I think that I want to make clear, like, I, I think that what you're saying is, and I'm going to use, make up my own term here because I don't know a better term. And you can tell me if there is a correct academic term, but kind of a, a weak standpoint epistemology, if you will, of, yeah, the women who were harassed and abused by Harvey Weinstein were in the, they did have a very unique experience and a unique um, perspective on what it's like to be sexually harassed. And right. that there is validity in that, that, that they experienced that. And, and it seems to me that there's no inherent contradiction with that idea, with the Christian worldview. Like, for example, uh, as Christians, we believe in a, a binary of men and women, that men and women are different. God's created us different. He's designed us different. And right. so maybe I can identify with the woman with the issue of blood more in, a, in a, just a, a more personal way um, than you might be able to as, as a man. It doesn't mean that you're less than or in oh, any sure. way inferior. It's just that I can kind of connect to it because of being a woman. And so it seems to me like that right. inherently isn't 
problematic for, for a not, Christian. Not at all. I don't think this is problematic for a Christian at all. I mean, for example, the, the jokes you were making earlier about Mon Monique's eyelash and, you know, <laughs> what men could relate to and what women could relate oh, to. Oh, right? the jokes. <laughs> oh, the jokes. <laughs> Which, you know, that, that's a perfect example, right? Because it's true. I, I've never had to mess with an eyelash. I don't know what, I don't know what that's like. Um, but there are things that, that you two will know because of your common experience as women that, that, that I wouldn't have direct insight into. But the real question is, can I be made to understand even a little bit what, it's, what this is like? Um, and you know, it's, it's the most common thing in the world that different people will have differences in their experiences to varying degrees um, for all kinds of reasons. Um, and the real question, though, when it comes to objective truth and knowledge is how much can we share from our experiences? How much is common to your experience and to mine that um, we can look to as a common ground for building uh, a life together in community? So that's the key issue. And there's a lot about postmodern thought that suggests there are barriers to understanding one another that just cannot be overcome. And that's what's really dangerous about that form of thinking, it seems to me. Yeah, and I think that's a really good analogy because even as a woman, I have to admit, I've never had an eyebrow problem. <laughs> I don't do anything with my eyebrows. I don't pluck them. I don't put makeup on them. But I know some women do, but I can still relate to it even if I've never experienced that through a description. There's information that I can gather by that and, and still have some level of knowledge. It's still a knowable situation. Um, so let's go, let's go back for a minute and unpack a little bit more the earlier part of the conversation about whether certain people have more access to certain truths, because that really starts to get us into the heart of this question of kind of ethnic social location, racial social location. Did you want to ask no, something? No, I was... Um... I was looking at Caleb's question. He said, can you be made to understand? I think that is what standpoint epistemology denies, right? As I understand it, the, at least the postmodern version of it says, um, there are certain truths that you just can't get access to unless you belong to the right demographic category. Mm -hmm. Okay. So then if you, if you don't belong to the right demographic category, then you just simply cannot know. And so then for like white brothers and sisters, we would need or they would need a, a person of color in order to be able to accurately understand oppression, understand scripture that talks about oppression and things like that. That's right. That's my understanding. And so when we hear people say, well, the Bible is, is a book written by the oppressed for the oppressed, I, as a, as a white person, who is, according to critical theory, in the, the category of the privileged, I need people of color in the room in order to interpret the Bible correctly because I don't share the same social location as the people of color who are in the bucket of the oppressed class. So if the Bible is a book written by the oppressed for the oppressed, the underlying framework of that is that I, as a white person, can't really understand the Bible in, in any, th there's a certain distance between me and scripture. Am I, am I kind of getting on the right track there? 
Well, that sounds like one possible um, way of, of applying um, standpoint epistemology when you're looking at biblical interpretation. Um, of course, that presupposes the idea that it's a book written by the oppressed for the oppressed. Right. Um, of, of course, you know, a different issue here is what are, what are the categories that matter? I mean, if we're really talking about, say, skin color, right, then one of the things that would matter is the skin color of the authors of the Bible. And, you know, do we even know? <laughs> so, uh, you know, there's a big question here about who falls into the right category to properly understand the Bible in the first place. Yeah. And so let's get into that a little bit more, because I think that's really kind of where this all leads is um, because what happens then is that you get into these discussions where, you know, I can't interpret scripture and I need all these different, different theologies by different groups. And there's, there's Latino theology and black theology and white theology. So we can't read Wayne Grudem's systematic theology and have it kind of approximate what Christians have historically believed because he's white and he's not in an oppressed group. So how do we begin to address that in, in a meaningful way? Well, it seems to me that if you really want to address the problems of standpoint epistemology, what you need to do is address it at uh, the fundamental philosophical level of um, you know, epistemology itself. One of the things that, um, that Dallas Willard did, I mean, he's well known in Christian circles as a writer on spiritual disciplines and uh, spiritual formation. But as a scholar, he was an expert on the philosophy of a guy named Edmund Husserl who ironically is, is oftentimes uh, thought of as sort of one of the fathers of, of at least one strain of the continental tradition. But Husserl was, uh, was a realist about truth and about knowledge, and he believed that we could get at objective knowledge. But the way Husserl, and this is why Dallas thought that Husserl was so important that he devoted a huge amount of his, of his own uh, life to studying Husserl, translating Husserl, and interpreting Husserl, applying Husserl's thought to many philosophical problems. What Husserl did was he paid very close attention to the nature of consciousness and the internal structures of consciousness itself in which truth and reality are revealed. And he had a whole theory about how um, you know, your, your mind sort of took shape in order to give you access to the objective world in its, in its various forms, whether that's part of the invis invisible furniture of reality or, you know, the, the computer sitting in front of you. And um, this gets very complex, but let me just give a few examples here. These are the kinds of things that Husserl and Dallas following him would say, go into any act of conscious awareness or any state of, of conscious awareness. First of all, there is an object of consciousness. There's some thing that you're aware of when you're aware. But then there's also a way in which you're aware of it. There, for example, if you're looking at your coffee mug um, from the side, the the top, the opening is going to look elliptical, but if you're looking straight down upon it, it's going to look like a circle. So this is where perspective comes into play. This is where Dallas's view and Husserl's view can accommodate differing perspectives on one and the same thing. And then there's another feature of conscious experience, and that's what Husserl called horizon. And this is the idea that there is often, usually, perhaps always, uh, 
something more than what is given right now in an experience. So when I see my coffee mug, um, it presents itself to me as something that I can reach out and grab, that I could feel. Um, when I'm just seeing it, I'm not feeling it, but it presents itself to me as the, as something that there's more to more to be known about it. And uh, you know, it's got a, a front side and a back side. I'm only looking at one side. I can pick it up and rotate it and see what was hidden before. So acts of thought or concepts, you might say, are very complex entities. What you're talking about here are complete states of mind. And two people can have states of mind that are directed toward the same thing, but it can be presented to them in different ways. And they can be presented with different horizons for sort of exploring more. And so there is, there's nothing inconsistent with thinking that there is an objective reality about which we can have objective knowledge, but it can present itself to us in different ways. And this has to do with the finitude of our own perspective on the world. So in that sense, then in your analogy of the coffee mug, then would we say that uh, let's just say that the meaning of the biblical text is like the coffee mug. It's some that the text of the Bible really does mean something. It means yes. it means what the author intended it to mean, and that is is an objective reality. But the question is, is how do we get to that to that meaning? And right. so, in that sense, then we can come at it from different angles but we are we are trying to get to an objective truth of what the scripture means right and so you know one of the sort of standard things that you have to do if you want to interpret the bible correctly is you have to try to put it into historical context you have to try to read the texts as they would have been understood by people who lived in the context of the writer right people who were part of the original audience and sometimes that really opens your eyes to deeper meanings in the text. Go ahead. I'm just, I guess I'm going back to the, to the idea of black and white theology. Then mm -hmm. with the standpoint of epistemology, if there is this weak idea of standpoint of epistemology, and this is something that I used to believe for a really long time that I'm still working my, my own way through um, mm -hmm. But if there is this idea of this weaker theology or this weaker understanding, um, like as women or um, yeah, as, or, uh, as, as a woman, like so I can understand this group of things in a way that maybe a man could not because of biology. Do we then apply that to experience and bring that to scripture? Does well, that make sense? I mean like, so do you, you and I say bringing our own? Well, I just think that that's that's part of this conversation right now is I can bring my experience. I grew up in South L.A. I mm -hmm. I'm black. I'm a woman like I have things that I can bring to scripture and I can read and say, well, you know, I understand that this way. And I understand it this way because I am a black woman who grew up you know, the first 15, 16 years in an impoverished area. So this mm -hmm. is this is what I can contribute. This is what my thought on this text and things like that. Sure. Krista, not having that experience would 
or potentially could offer something different. And this is where I think there's a tension in how mm-hmm. we read scripture and people who stand for standpoint epistemology. They're like, well, you need the the person of color because otherwise you're only going to have this one view. Yeah. So, so here's kind of how I think about it. Um, it seems to me that there's a core meaning to at least the most important parts of scripture. All right. Um, so I, I don't know that you have to understand every last line in the Bible to have an adequate view of the Christian life. But at least for the the parts that are most important for living the Christian life, there is a certain sort of core meaning that transcends cultural particularities and and particularities of individual experience. So it might be a universal truth. Yeah, I'm I'm inclined to say it's a sort of universal truth. Like, for example, when you're talking about the nature of agape love, and if there's something that's central to living the Christian life, it's having some sense of what it means to love one another as God loved us. Mm-hmm. Now, I can have some sense of what that means without knowing fully what Christ went through on the cross to fully exemplify that love. Does that mean that I don't understand the Christian life? Well, no, I, I understand it, and I understand it well enough Um could I know more about it if I were to enter more fully into uh, a Christ-like perspective? Sure, I probably could. Um, but there's this core meaning that is understandable to just about anyone who's had um, a sort of a- any experience falling within the normal range of human experiences. They're going to be un- able to understand things like like love and contempt and they'll be able to understand the difference between that and they'll be able to understand why love is good and contempt is bad. And they'll be able to see how, you know, uh, an act of sacrifice can be a profound expression of love and so on and so forth. So you would say that the Bible has certain truths that are universal, some truths that are, um, Oh, I lost the other term. Wasn't absolute. It was, uh, universal and objective. There are certain truths that are objectives. There are certain truths that are universal. Uh, There's probably certain truths that are both, but, and those would be accessible by everyone, not necessarily fully, like we don't have full knowledge in an experiential way of all the pain Jesus experienced on the cross, but we can read about it in scripture. We can learn about the horrific nature of Roman crucifixion. Mm -hmm. You know, we can kind of study it from a medical perspective um, and get some insight about that. So there are some things that are knowable. Everything is not just siloed off where I have my own container of truth and Monique has her own container of truth. Rather, there is a universal truth and an objective truth that we are both accessing um and and trying to get to am i on the right track there that sounds right to me okay right and so when it comes to things like white people understanding the black experience in america i mean well how far can one go in understanding that uh probably not all the way but probably far enough to have genuine understanding right genuine understanding so what the what the contemporary standpoint epistemologists are wanting to say is that you can't understand well enough 
to be able to have an informed opinion on things like whether or not a certain act counts as a racist act or whether a certain system exhibits systemic racism. And, and that, to me, seems a bit far-fetched, let's say. Or another analogy could be that you can't really understand or comment on the issue of abortion because you're not a woman and you've never right. been pregnant. That would be another and, pertinent example. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. Does that, is that helping you? Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, so I'm trying to. Th- I'm just looking in the comments. Yeah. I'm trying to read uh, if there's any of these comments. Colin promoting on standpoint epistemology a lot, trying to understand Christianity through the eyes of the dominant is like trying to understand Jesus through the eyes of the Romans. James James Cone. Cone. Mm. So that's an important point because James Cone and liberation theology might be another Mm -hmm. component that's in our shopping cart of, of ideas that, you know, again, going back to the previous quote of if, if the Bible, and this is something you, you often see quoted in social justice circles, the Bible is a book written by the oppressed for the oppressed. Mm -hmm. So, you can't even get to that universal or objective meaning of scripture um, if you are not in an oppressed category. And that's the really the, the one of the fundamental problems of standpoint epistemology in adopting that as a Christian. Would, would you say? Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, the idea here is uh, we want to look at, common human experience. And we want to ask ourselves, you know, just how oppressed do you have to be in order to have the requisite understanding? Um, I, I expect that most people have experienced some form of oppression in their life, regardless of their race or gender, you know, something that that feels oppressive to them. And that's the fundamental insight. If, you, if you've if you experienced something that feels oppressive to you, then you have a fundamental insight into the nature of oppression. And there's a lot more you could learn. And maybe there's truth that you don't have access to. But the, the fact of the matter is that if you have that fundamental experience, you have a, a little ledge on which to stand from, from which you can begin to understand the experience of people who have been more oppressed than you. Commonality of human experience is the key here. And what is pernicious, it seems to me, about the prevailing views of standpoint epistemology is that they deny any significant commonality to human experience when it comes to things like oppression and injustice. I guess... Another question that I have then is, do you, but do you even really need to understand the experience to understand the definition or to understand what is happening? I, I think when I think about standpoint epistemology and the Bible was written by the oppressed for the oppressed and things like that, it, 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 it takes away white people's, um, ability to be able to even understand the scripture. So mm-hmm. I think when you're doing hermeneutics though, I can look at the context, I can look at what the author means, and I can get the truth that is offered in scripture. It doesn't matter what color I am or if I've ever experienced racism or not. What the author is meaning is what the author's meaning. And and that's where we extrapolate our truth from. I don't extrapolate truth based on my experience or based on my ability or inability to experience 
quote unquote truth or to to have an experience? Yeah, I, I guess I would maybe disagree a little bit with that. I mean, mm -hmm. there's certainly a sense in which you can understand the linguistic meaning of a text without having experienced what it's talking about. But um, it, ultimately, the fullness of understanding depends on experience the thing that, experiencing the thing mm -hmm. that's being discussed. So, for example, um, a blind person can learn the proper uses of color words and, and can have a conversation um, if they've learned the ordinary uses of color words. They can learn, for example, the fact that stop signs are red. Um, and, and so someone might say, oh, there's a stop sign up there, and the blind person say, oh, yeah, red sign, huh? And, you know, they can understand how the words fit into a structure of usage that plays a role in determining meaning. But there's a real question here. Do they really understand what red is if they haven't experienced it? And, and I think that there's something lacking in the understanding of red if you haven't actually experienced it. Now, maybe there are some things where you don't need to experience them to have the full understanding. But for lots of things, you do need to have some level of experience in order to have um, a, a moderately adequate understanding of it, or so it seems to me. No, that makes sense. I guess I'm, I'm thinking more for the two plus two is four kind of objective things yeah. as opposed to like my brother who's colorblind. I could tell mm -hmm. him it's red all day long and mm -hmm. what's red to him is different than what's red to me. Right, but the, yeah. but two plus two is always going to be four. But from what I find in a lot of, um, from a lot of people or people that I've listened to who holds a standpoint of epistemology, they would say that even being able to understand the two plus two is four for a white person wouldn't be available unless they had someone there to help them understand that. So that's yeah, kind that of seems... what, what I was hitting on, but mm -hmm. I'm not sure, you know, if, if you think that's a fair assessment. Well, you know, um, that to the extent that standpoint epistemologists do tend to want to silo people into sort of unassailable um, uh, sort of palaces of meaning, so to speak. Um, yes, I mean, what you're saying is right. Uh, there's got to be, I mean, there does have to be at least some sort of bare linguistic uh, understanding, it seems to me, right? So when a, when a black person says, um, this is a racist system, um, I guess one might ask what the point of even saying that is to a wide audience if, if you can't get the bare linguistic understanding up and running. Um, on the other hand, it certainly does seem to be the case that standpoint epistemologists are perfectly willing to say, um, while maybe the white people can understand what is meant by racist system, they can't see the the truths or the the facts, mm -hmm. so to speak, that that would justify that remark. Yeah, yeah. I think I'm, I'm with you. Okay. I think too. Uh, we're getting some comments in in the the chat here. I think um, there was one that I wanted to highlight. I, oh, the issue of inconsequential truths. Um, I wanted to highlight that, like. There's some things that we might say, like having an experience, going back to the issue of the woman with the, the, the issue of blood. I mean, you don't need to have that experience in order to understand the story. There's right, something right. about, I think what you said earlier about the universality of, of the common human experience mm -hmm. that standpoint epistemology kind of robs us of, that we right. have common human experiences and that 
a man can understand an idea about bleeding, even if they've never experienced it, that might be what we talked about earlier of an inconsequential truth. Mm-hmm. It doesn't affect the meaning of the text. Right. It just helps me more closely identify with that woman if I am also a woman who has experienced super heavy periods. Okay. So I think that there's kind of a difference between um, saying I can't get to the truth because of my skin color. Um, it, it robs us of kind of the historic Christian position that we're all created in the image of God. And there's a certain universal common experience and universal human longings. And right. so I want to make sure that we're clarifying that point as well. Yeah, it seems to me that the fundamental moral dynamic of human life is one that has to be part of the common human experience. Um, if that's not the case, it's very difficult to see how you can make sense of the idea that we inhabit a world created by one God with uh, a consistent nature, right? So if we, if we live in a world created by a God of love, and if uh, we've been put into this world to use our freedom to hopefully become uh, beings that are as like him as possible, given the limits of our natures, uh, then we're going to have to have some sort of insight into the nature of love. And we're going to have to be able to recognize love and its opposite and make appropriate choices that that um, guide us in the direction of, of love. So certainly when it comes to um, moral truths, I mean, the, the core moral truths, I think, are part of the the universal invisible furniture of the universe as you were saying earlier okay there's some other comments on yeah facebook. on facebook all right uh, on which not, so i'm sorry on youtube oh, okay i was looking at jeremy's he says so if the disabled are an oppressed category could a person blind from birth better understand all of the visual imagery and symbolism in the bible wouldn't their oppression be a disadvantage Oh, I think he means uh, uh, could or, a person not understand, a blind person not understand? I don't know. I was a little qu- yeah. thrown off, so I read it out loud. <laughs> yeah, I know. I think what he means is a blind person from birth wouldn't be able to understand the visual image and symbolism. So then their oppression would actually be a, a disadvantage because mm. they would, you know, so I yeah, think it, yeah, go ahead. I'm not sure. So I, I'm I'm wondering if Jeremy was trying to um, sort of take the the central claim of standpoint epistemology that being oppressed gives you a certain epistemic advantage because it enables you to see things yes. that uh, yeah. that you otherwise couldn't see, um, and applying that to visual blindness. Um, and I'm not sure that it transfers. Uh, I'm not sure that the the insight of, of standpoint epistemology uh, transfers in, in that way. Um, so, uh, you know, being blind certainly wouldn't give the blind person more insight into uh, the nature of color. Um, but being so if, if the blind person was oppressed, then that blind person might very well have some insights into how oppression works in his or her social context. Um, that might be the case, but it's not going to transfer to visual knowledge it seems to me alicia has a really thoughtful comment Mm -hmm. on youtube that i'd like to read i think it's very helpful when god decided he would use a book to communicate truth to his creation i believe he expected it to be able to be understood by his creation regardless of their culture color etc 
I think that's actually a very important concept because if we if we adopt standpoint epistemology wholesale, um, you know, the hard version of it, kind of the the current cultural version of it, it really renders the universality of scripture and the whole idea of the Great Commission of preaching the gospel to to every nation that there it's almost an impossible task because you could say, well, there's a separation between God and me as a human. Like I can't really understand God fully. So can I really understand his revelation? And then you could say, Mm -hmm. well, there's further cultural distance because I speak English and not Hebrew, Aramaic or Greek. And so Mm -hmm. can I really understand the scripture? There's too much distance. Oh, and I'm a white person and I'm, I'm privileged. So can I really understand scripture? We have to hold on to a certain foundational understanding that transcends culture, transcends language, transcends time frame. Um, if we're going to take the Great Commission seriously, mm-hmm. what that would you say right to that, to Aaron? No, that seems exactly right, right? So again, I, I do think there's a core meaning of Scripture. And really, I mean, one of the ways to think about what's at stake when we're talking about standpoint epistemology is uh, the very possibility of communication. Can I take my thoughts and experiences and convey them to someone else in a way that actually engenders understanding? And God revealing himself to human beings, particularly when it comes to um, you know, scriptural revelation, um, you know, trying to express God and his own nature and truths about um, how one should live uh, in a particular language. And the very idea that that would be communicable from God to humans, first of all, and then from human to human across different linguistic and cultural communities presupposes that there is a core of universally accessible meaning. And it may be true that, you know, learning more about the original context can um, enhance your understanding. I think that is true. However, if there wasn't a communicable core of meaning that you could grasp without having any specialized historical or hermeneutical training, um, then the, the very idea of there being a, a biblical text meant for all people or a a Christian gospel meant for all people, it would just be hopeless. There has to be a, a universe or a core of, of universally communicable truth that all people can understand so long as they have, you know, um, the requisite cognitive abilities to understand language and so forth. Very good. I was going to ask, okay, so we, we now know what standpoint epistemology is like we have the framework for it and all of that. And yet we're still being bombarded with it in culture. I think um, Christian universities are bombarded with it. We see it pretty much everywhere, um, at least when I look out. But I have a question as to like, how do we how do we combat it or how do we have conversation maybe to to what tips can you offer in conversation to people that like, oh, this is what you're encountering. Like, this is how you can offer other questions or help people see that they're in in, like a a different worldview system than Orthodox Christianity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so so kind of how do you... How do you deal with someone who's operating from a basis of standpoint epistemology? Yeah. That, yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a tough question to answer in general terms. And one of the problems that we encounter um, with folks who are, who are coming at 
things from this perspective is that a lot of them aren't really open to playing fair. Um, for a lot of people who endorse these um, these sorts of views, the, you know, the whole sort of suite of critical theory oriented views, they're more interested in effecting change, a kind of change that they think is good than they are with coming to a meeting of the minds with people who disagree with them. Um, and so, you know, if you're dealing with folks who aren't willing to have an honest discussion uh, with you as an equal, there's, it's not clear to me that there's anything useful that can be said about how to deal with such a person. I mean, one might say something like, well, don't throw your pearls before swine. Or one might say, well, okay, you know, go ahead and, and try, but don't be too disappointed when this person won't accept anything you have to say. But from a person who's really operating um, in good faith uh, and, and is willing to um, work with you as a fellow human being, I would say just try to find points of commonality. I think it's very hard to deny that we have things in common and that there are common features of our experience. Uh, and so, you know, if you're if you're dealing with someone who says, well, you know, a white person can't understand um, oppression because, you know, they're part of the privileged class. Well, is there something that you have experienced where you can say, well, but now hold on. I know this isn't exactly the same as what you have been through, but, you know, I've had these experiences and they, they let me, uh, they give me some insight in, into what things might have been like for you um, because there seems to be a commonality of experience here. Um, or, you know, maybe depart from the subject of oppression and just say, well, now look, um, aren't there other features of experience that, that we have in common? Um, and can't I understand what you mean when you say red and, and you understand what I mean when I say red or, you know, sweet or bitter or, you know, and start with, with simple things like that and then say, now, now what's so different when it comes to something like oppression? What, where do we cross the magical line where, where all of a sudden I can no longer understand what you're saying or see the world as you're seeing it? That's really good. It helps to kind of walk people through first some universals that exist that we could agree on. Uh, common human experience and then trying to figure out, well, you know, where is that line where I stop being able to understand, you know, these things. Yeah. So. And, and why? Um, a turn of the 20th century, a British philosopher by the name of G.E. Moore made the observation that um, theories of cognition that deny the possibility of objective knowledge almost always are presupposing a theory of cognition of how the mind works that is more speculative than the idea that we actually have direct knowledge itself. So the idea here is that there are flawed theories about how the mind works that are usually in the background when people are saying, well, you can't know this. So probe that a bit, find out exactly how they think knowledge is working and trying to find that line where you know, what changes here and why. Why can't I follow you this far? Very good. I'm wondering, and someone else is asking this question too on YouTube is what do you think Christians give up when we go down the path of kind of more hard um, standpoint epistemology? Like what do you think that, that trade-off is? Where do you think that road leads for us as Christians? What, what aspect of the, of our faith, are, are we giving up at that point? 
Well, it seems to me that really the heart of the faith lies in the balance here, um, because at the center of the Christian faith, you have a God who has love for all of his creations, right? And it's universal. And what standpoint epistemology does is it deprives us of a perspective from which we can, I think, really see other people the way God sees them. And that, I think, is a huge problem when it comes to practicing the Christian life, when it comes to actually loving other people uh, in the way that God loves them. I agree with that. I think it it just makes it so much easier to discount or discredit someone else who isn't like you, who doesn't have the same experience as you, who doesn't have the same melanin as you, their, their view isn't important. You know, I don't have to listen to you or what you think because, well, you're white and you obviously don't know. And so it, to me, it also um, spurs pride because now I have melanin and I am a woman and you know, like I have all these different intersections. And so of course I know, you know, and so I need to teach you. And so it, yeah, I, I completely agree that it, it limits your ability almost to see someone else as a full image bearer. You know, Mm -hmm. they're an image bearer, but you know, they're that kind of image bearer over there. Right. Right. Cause then you kind of divide the world into, or the body of Christ into those who get it and those who don't. Yeah. You know, and that really undercuts unity in the body at a a fairly foundational level that we can't even share the same knowledge. Like you're in your own silo and I'm in my own silo and never the twain shall meet. Well, I I think that it it even goes deeper than that. There's something completely deficient. Mm. And that's what I'm seeing right now is this conversation of deficiency. It's like, well, you know, she's deficient. She, this Krista, she, what she had this white skin. And so she like the, the, there was a thing that went around a couple months ago about whiteness being evil and white people having this inherent, um, like predisposition Mm. toward judgment or evil racism like all of these things but when you when you then apply that lens onto the scripture there there's something that's wrong at like a molecular level at this point not just your your inability to be able to participate or understand because of experience yeah well that's powerful that's Uh, why this is a mess y'all don't be adopting this this is a mess we have yeah, one more question, Aaron, oh, sure. uh, a yeah. really good one that I'd like to have you field before we go. Um, it's on YouTube, Bob. Because, uh, Aaron, we would keep you here all night. Yeah, we got lots of <laughs> questions. No games. In standpoint epistemology, who becomes the arbiter of truth when an oppressor and oppressed have the same truth and a conflicting interpretation? Hmm. So the same truth, but a conflicting interpretation. It would be useful to have an example of that. I'm not yeah. sure exactly what is meant. So I'm I'm thinking like if we look at, let's look at the Bible. Like that's a truth. Oh, I see. And okay. but Monique and I are both coming at it from our own silos of black truth, white truth, and and then we're looking at the Bible. Well, who arbitrates if we both have conflicting interpretations? Yeah, well, that has a simple answer from the way at least standpoint epistemology is is being used nowadays. And so, I mean, one of the things we might want to distinguish uh, between is theories and then how they're employed. Because one of the things folks will say is that most of the the theoreticians um, 
who, who uh, devise these views are usually a lot more sophisticated than the folks who, who deploy them out in the streets. But one of the ways that standpoint epistemology is being used nowadays, and, and Monique was just sort of uh, speaking to this a moment ago, um, when it comes to a disagreement between, uh, say, a, a black person and a white person about the nature of oppression or how to read a scripture that has to do with, um, say, uh, how, uh, with uh, oppressed versus um, non-oppressed classes of people or something like that, the oppressed person always has the say. Thank they you. are the ones with the epistemic yes. uh, advantage, and so they have a truer perspective, so to speak. Their, their truth trumps yes. everyone else's truth at that yes. point. That's how it's being used. Mm -hmm. So there is no need for arbitration at that point because you automatically defect to the person of color, the minority, the oppressed, their experience, their view, because right. there is something, again, inherently missing from your silo. Right. I'm defective. And, I didn't want to be the first one to say it, but. We're here to, dis to disagree Correct. is simply to reassert yourself as the oppressor and try to silence the oppressed voice to question and, to disagree to bring right. other thought into it all of that just goes to say well I mean you're just proving that there is something wrong you're proving that there's something missing so mm -hmm. yeah that that was oh yay I'm glad I was able to agree with that <laughs> Well, this has been very fascinating, Aaron. I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to sit with us and walk us through it. I like, I like his slow talking uh, way of being. Yes. It's really like, calm. Oh, thanks. You know, calm. It's very calming. And I did not mean to call you defective. I did not think you're defective. That's okay. Don't, don't be, don't, don't be sensitive. It was just for purposes of illustration. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Well, thank you for, for doing this. And we're going to have Aaron back uh, in a couple of months to talk about you just kind of continue to unpack this it's, there's so much here we laid some good groundwork but we're gonna uh have him back for our annual show on martin luther king and his legacy and really comparing and contrasting and seeing how this whole question of standpoint epistemology comes to bear on the legacy of the civil rights versus what we're seeing now with black lives matter so i think that's going to be a great conversation and looking forward to having Aaron yeah. back uh, to to talk about more because this really is a big discussion and it took us a long time to find you. So thank you. For <laughs> now we're not a pleasure. Yeah, really, really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for having me. Oh, Thanks thank so you so much. much. Mm -hmm. All right. That was that was good stuff. Yeah, it was it was thick. Like it, it that, that reminded it's a me lot. of the conversation with Pat Sawyer. Like we yeah. just had to like this piece, this piece, this piece, this piece. But yeah, I, I felt like, you know, we covered some some good ground there. And, you know, I still have more questions, but I felt like that was a really good foundation for, for more, you know, to for us to continue processing things. Yeah, no, yeah. I agree. And I think that at the end of the day, standpoint epistemology, y'all, is some baloney. <laughs> So we, we don't, we don't need that's the that. To, that's the academic that is, term. That is the, I see. Yeah. I'm not an academic y'all, even though I'm in, I'm in seminary, I've been in seminary for 38 minutes. Um, <laughs> what I have learned and gathered is that God does have objective truth. Like there are truths that are just really true, true, yeah. no matter who is, who they're before. And um, I think Laura, Laura, her, her hook, 
is Laura W on um, Facebook. No, on it's what do you call this thing? YouTube. And she was like, well, what about the Holy Spirit? Like, where does that come into play? And I'm like, yes, we do need conversation that centers around the Holy Spirit as well. Yeah. You know, so it, because without the Holy Spirit, I don't care if you're black, white, green with purple polka dots. You're, you know, your interpretation of scripture is, it's going to be deficient. Like we need the Holy Spirit's guidance in all of this as well. Yeah, I, I think that can't be um, overemphasized to some degree, but I think it's also important to realize, like, we're talking about a lot of 20th century philosophy here, okay? And Christians figured out how to preach the gospel for 1,900 years before this came along. Mm-hmm. You know, like, there's something to be said for hey, this is what Christians have historically believed. Mm-hmm. Before we come in and have this super complicated understanding and framework that, well, now we need to kind of backwards retrofit all of our theology according to this new framework. Mm-hmm. No, we don't. Yeah. No, we don't. Mm-hmm. We have been operating just fine for most of 2,000 years. And so I think... This is important. I'm glad we took this time to kind of take our shopping cart and go down the aisle and understand all of these movements that have brought us to this There's some this things moment. we need to take out our shopping cart. I remember being a kid and going to the store with my mom and putting things in, thinking <laughs> she wasn't seeing it. And we get to the checkout line. I'm like, she didn't put all my stuff back. There are some things we need to put back. Yeah. we yeah. don't. We, yeah. Because, I mean, if we're going to go... Th- uh, and preach the gospel to all nations it, and a system that undermines that is is problematic yeah because how do you go and preach the gospel to all nations when okay now here's 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 where i'm like this has this can't be a universal thing like throughout the world because how would americans go and be missionaries yeah every like every other nation basically would be poor or oppressed and so what am i doing when i go over over but some people would say that's that's exactly right is well preaching the gospel is just an extension of colonialism Mm -hmm. and you we shouldn't be doing that Mm -hmm. so you know these are this these these tentacles have far-reaching implications and so we have to think very carefully about about these things and and um so hopefully you guys have found this helpful tonight i know it was a little bit more academic than normal, but sometimes we have to go down that path to really understand how we arrived here. And the title of this show should be changed to eyebrows and baloney. That could be true. Y'all, I'm working on my language. I'm just going to keep it open and honest because we are family. Um, (laughs) Caleb says, don't put any baloney in your shopping cart. No, (laughs) no, that's not. Ooh, but a little burn baloney. I don't know about y'all, but is that a black thing? That's what I was gonna say. I don't know about y'all. I didn't. I wasn't trying to say white people, but then again, I was. Um, So what we would do at home, and and like my black friends, we everybody could eat a fried baloney sandwich. Woo, get a little burn on the edge. Who with some mustard? Mm, that thing would bless you so much. But I've yeah, never heard of this. It's so good. I don't know if it's a black thing or not, or maybe it was just a. a Okay. Oh, oh, yes, pause. Praise him. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> yeah. So, ooh, fried bologna. Yeah. So I'm glad that it's not just a, a black thing. 
right. um, love fried bologna. Okay. Yes. Oh, but Terrence, Terrence. Terrence. Yeah. Terrence, come on, Terrence, come on through. <laughs> yes. Oh, y'all, I'm, I'm gonna go ahead and put a plug out there. Um, Terrence Williams is a pastor in Virginia, and he is also talking a lot about critical race theory and critical theory, critical social theories in this cultural moment. Y'all, if y'all see him on on Facebook or anything like that. Follow him. He's putting out some some really good That's content. A good yeah, brother in the Lord. Guy. Good brother in the Lord. Just another resource. You know, it it can be hard to find people who are talking the same language. Yeah. And I would say, yeah, Terrence, put your um your handle in the comments so people can find you. Yeah, for sure. All right, my friends, we have more guests coming. We've got some exciting things coming up on the show in the next few weeks. Um, so mm-hmm. uh, we got. For Halloween, for next week's show, we're going to do a show actually on Reformation Day, um, which is also on October 31st. And we're going to yes. have an expert on Martin Luther and Reformation Day. So that's- I didn't know Reformation Day was a thing. I said, who? We got a Reformation Day. Is it for Christians or is it only for the reform? I don't know. People, I'm new. Seminary, 38 minutes. <laughs> So we're going to talk about that next week. We're going to have our friend Melissa Palou and her husband Devin on. That's going to be fun. To talk about interracial marriage and family and all of those things. Melissa is one of our book group leaders at Center for Biblical Unity. Yes. So that's going to be fun. We've got um, your friend, uh, Dr. Corey Miller. I haven't met him yet, but but you've been interacting with him and he's going to He's the president of Ratio Christie. Mm-hmm. He's going to be coming out and talking to us about critical theory coming into Christian colleges. That's going to be great because they're they're involved in so much campus ministry yes. and the need for that, even on Christian campuses, uh, to talk about worldviews. Pump for that show. And today I just booked. I'm super excited. Y'all, she's so excited. I'm in, I'm out trying to shop and not think about any ministry at all. And I'm texting her. She's like, "Ooh, I booked this guest, you guys." So I booked uh, Abuna Anthony, Abuna Anthony Musa from the Coptic Orthodox Answers YouTube channel, mm-hmm. which I've mentioned several times in my podcast yes. and on this show. Awesome resource. Can't believe he's coming on, and we're going to talk about the persecuted church and wisdom from our Egyptian. Christian brothers and sisters who are several centuries ahead of us in knowing how to live as a religious minority. I think that uh, Father Anthony's discussion is going to be really fantastic. He's he's making a way to do it. Normally he has Vespers um, because he's a priest. He has Vespers on Saturday night where he has to lead his his parish in prayers. There's the special evening prayers. Okay. And so he's making an accommodation so he can come be live on our show. So really looking forward to uh, talking with Father Anthony. So got some great guests coming and we just hope to keep bringing some education and truth. Yes. And truth. Um, I also was thinking about Caleb and Engage Truth. Yeah. If Caleb, if you um, haven't already, Caleb Harrelson at Engage Truth is another resource that you he's can He's one of our moderators yes, tonight. And he's one of our moderators. Caleb, if, you're, if you haven't yet, um, put your handle in there too so people can yeah. find you as well. Very we good. Be, we need to resource one another, y'all. <laughs> yes. All right. It's time for me to go have ice cream. All right. Hey, everyone. We hope you have a great week. We love you. Thank you for all your support. Share the show. Share the show. Share the show. Like the show. Comment on the show. It helps our analytics. It helps get the word out. We hope you found this helpful. 
Good night. Bye. Thanks for listening to All The Things. Be sure to subscribe to our website at allthethingsshow.com and find us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or wherever you stream your podcast. Be sure to hit that subscribe button and the bell so you'll receive alerts when we post new shows. We'll see you next week. Bye.